How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing President Obama's economic stimulus, an $800 billion spending spree that Congress approved in 2009 during the darkest days of the global economic crisis. In this election year, the stimulus remains front and center in the debate over what role government should play in steering the American economy. Supporters say the stimulus was an appropriate use of taxpayer funds that created jobs, rebuilt infrastructure, and advanced clean technology. Critics say it wasted public money on unproven companies, didn't create jobs, and failed to deliver on its promises. Most Americans side with the critics. The number of people who think the economic stimulus was a success is smaller than the number who believe Elvis is alive, according to a new book on it. The next hour, we'll discuss the stimulus, the Bay Area people who helped shape it, and what it did for clean energy economy in California and beyond. Joining us with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club, we are pleased to have Michael Grunwald, a senior national correspondent with Time Magazine and author of The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. And he, he was um, also chasing Elvis in his spare time. Uh, also joining us is Nancy Fund, a managing partner with DBL Investors, a venture firm that has a stake in Tesla, BrightSource, and other companies that received stimulus funds. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you for so Michael Grunwald, in a couple of weeks, on October 3rd, the first presidential debate will be in Denver. But let's go to Denver in 2009 when President Obama was on a rooftop and signed the Stimulus Act into law. So set the stage for us, that scene, and the significance of what happened there on that rooftop in Denver. Well, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a funny scene. He was up there with Biden and this, this guy who was uh, from from Colorado and had, uh, had started a solar company. Namaste uh, entered. Or, that's right, uh, Namaste, which uh, which Biden couldn't pronounce. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and, uh, and, and in fact, Biden had told told this guy that if he mispronounced it, that uh, that he could then mispronounce Biden's name. And when he introduced Biden, he said, uh, "And now I'd like to introduce Vice President Biden," which is still on the sort of anyway. Um, this was uh, they, they went to, they went to Colorado because they wanted to get out of Washington um, because they just had this very ugly horse trading scene of getting this thing passed. Mm-hmm. It was very unlike the kind of hope and change that uh, that candidate Obama had talked about on the on the campaign trail. Um, it sort of did serve notice that after campaigning as this kind of change the system outsider, he was going to govern as a work the system insider. And the idea was to kind of get some of that mojo back uh, and come out and talk about what the uh, what the stimulus actually did, because it was a really big deal. It was $800 billion um, when a $50 billion stimulus had failed in the Senate just a few months earlier. Obama had talked about $150 billion in October the liberal economists, most of whom now say, oh, it was too small, uh, they had sent a letter demanding a 300 to $400 billion stimulus. So it was a really big economic deal, but it was also really the purest distillation of what Obama meant by change. 
Um, he had talked during the campaign about trying to change the way we, we do energy, healthcare, education. Uh, this also included the largest infrastructure investments since Eisenhower, the largest middle class tax cuts since Reagan, the largest one time research investments ever. Uh, race to the top, to, which is really the most important education reform in years. It's a really big deal. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a cel- celebratory time in February 17, 2009. It was, you know, it was a lot to get done before your, your aides really knew where the bathrooms were in the West Wing. But you write that the stimulus was oversold as a short-term economic fix and undersold as a long-term catalyst for change and that the messaging was messed up from the beginning. Well, it was it was a tough sell. <laughs> um, uh, people forget, you know, in in, uh, in the winter of 2009. I mean, the the economic the financial earthquake had hit, but the economic tsunami hadn't reached the th- the shore. So, so in the fourth quarter of 2008, the economy was crashing at a nine percent annual annual rate. That's that's depression territory. We lost 800,000 jobs in January 2009. Then we passed the stimulus, and the next quarter had the the best jobs improvement in 30 years. But we were improving from absolutely hideous to just bad. Um, So there was this faction in the White House led by Rahm Emanuel, who was very insistent that the message had to be jobs, jobs, jobs. We're going to create 3 million jobs. Um, And every independent economist who's looked at this believes that it did create and save maybe 2.5 to 3 million jobs, that it added 2 to 4% to GDP, which is the difference between contraction and growth. But, you know, it was a 3 million job solution to an 8 million job problem. Um, so there were others in the White House, led by Vice President Biden, um, who, uh, who really from the beginning wanted to sell this more as a new New Deal. Um, as the sort of restructuring the economy for the long term so that we don't get into this kind of mess. Um, Obama did start talking about it a few months later. He had this new thing. It was going to be the new foundation uh, that mm-hmm. we were going to write the Proverbs where instead of building your economy on a house of sand, you're going to build it on this rock of you know, health information technology and, and clean energy, $90 billion for clean energy. And you know, a fairer tax code, education reform. But Doris Kearns Goodwin was quoted in the New York Times saying that the new foundation sounded like a girdle. And, uh, and you didn't hear about it too much after that. There was, a real, there was a real problem kind of settling on a message when the Republicans, from the beginning, I, I write in the book about how even before Obama took office, they had settled on this strategy of no. And they made this sound like $800 billion worth of levitating trains to Disneyland and mob museums and turtle tunnels and all kinds of nonsense that was not in the actual stimulus. But Obama had this kind of complicated message about we're going to be doing stimulus now and then we're going to pivot to fiscal responsibility. You know, we're going to be doing tax cuts and spending. We're going to be saving the economy in the short term and transforming it in the long term. And the Republicans had this very simple message that was, no, <laughs> we, it's big government, it's big spending, it's a big mess, and Democrats weren't really defending it. They were whining about it. You know, it's too small, it's too many tax cuts, it's not shovel-ready enough. It just all added to this cacophony of it's a mess, and the media, which really blew the story as badly as it blew the, 
the run-up to the war in Iraq was just not interested in kind of setting the record straight. Nancy Fun, let's bring you in here. Where was Silicon Valley at this point? You know, tell us uh, how bad things were. Liquidity had frozen up in 2009, right? It was hard to get access to capital. So was this welcomed by Silicon Valley, this big stimulus act, particularly the, the energy pieces? Well, I would say yes, because when the economic tsunami happened, it dried up private sources of capital, and many of them just went away. And it was it was a unique period where the government was able to step in and uh, offer a lifeline to companies that had been humming along, developing their technologies, getting private funding, uh, and and yet need were were long ways from going public or, or you know being commercial. Uh, and so you saw time after time that the approach the Obama administration took, which was to have a portfolio approach and, and, and really fund grants, fund um, loans, and also um, create an opportunity to supplement the investment tax credit for, for renewables with a cash grant because no one had any profits to tax to get a credit for. Uh, and all of that combined uh, was was really a lifesaver for many of the companies that are becoming the icons of the industry. Certainly, Tesla, uh, you can you can say was had, which received a 500 million uh, loan from the Advanced Technology Program that also benefited uh, GM and other traditional car makers. Uh, that was a pivotal moment for for Tesla in terms of funding that, that last stretch of, of uh, development that resulted in, in the car that we're increasingly seeing on the roads. Did it save S. Tesla? Would, it, would Tesla still be here? I mean, without I mean it? it's, hard to, it's hard to go Monday morning quarterback, but it, I would say that was incredibly important because it helped uh, the, the, improm- the, the effort that the government made to, to do the due diligence helped, for example, Daimler and, and subsequent automakers uh, or investors that came into Tesla because certainly the rigor that the, the government used in, in getting that grant was, was a signal that, that calmed, calmed some of the other private sector dollars down and, and got them to step up. It may have been good for some companies, but there was a debate within uh, the administration that it would have been better to do what the second George Bush did, which was present people with a $300 check. I still remember getting that check in the mail. A lot of people do. That was what I think Rahm Emanuel called the Ed McMahon moment, that it would have been better to, to put people, you know, cash right in people's pocketbooks rather than sort of trickle it out in this technocratic way. Michael right. Gimbal? Well, this was an ex- I do tell this story in the book, and if, you know, certainly if Democrats have told me that the story made their head explode um, about how there was... You know, the Obama's economists told him that, hey, you know, we're doing these gigantic tax cuts for the middle class. Ninety-five percent of the country is going to get it. But instead of just handing everybody a check, which behavioral science says, if you get a big check in the mail, you're more likely to put it in the bank and save it. Um, but if you just dribble it out into your paycheck a few bucks a week so that you don't notice it, you're more likely to spend it. But then you don't notice it. <laughs> so, so less than 10% of Americans are aware that they got these, uh, these tax cuts. It's been a political disaster. It's why I talked to Ron Klain, who was working for the vice president at the time, and he kind of laid out the explanation of why this was good public policy. And there really was this feeling that, you know, if, if you get the policy right, that you'll get results and the politics will sort of take care of itself. And what Ron said is that in retrospect, that was just stupid. 
Well, and, and another aspect to that that is that it wasn't like the government funded completely these companies. Mm-hmm. They, they, the companies got many multiples of the of the corp, of the government dollar from private sources. So it helped to get private industry back in the game of, of funding innovation. And certainly we wouldn't have the advances in electric vehicles, in solar, in wind, in storage, and, and biofuels and biochemicals if, if we had just uh, you know, given $300 to That's each fine. person. We, we focused it on, on critical needs in our energy infrastructure. So a smart policy but not the most effective policy but not the most effective communication. Right. I mean, people don't understand just the the scope of this thing was just incredible. I mean, we had been spending maybe a few billion dollars a year on clean energy at the federal level. And Bill Clinton in 99 came up with this five-year, $6 billion clean energy plan that was basically laughed out of town because people thought it was so pie in the sky. And then here, the, here is this new guy comes in in his first month, $90 billion that did leverage more than $100 billion in private capital at a time when the industry was completely dead in the water. We're talking about unprecedented investments in wind, solar, geothermal, and other renewables, right? Energy efficiency in every imaginable form, smarter grid, cleaner coal, the electric vehicles, creating an entirely entire advanced battery industry for electric vehicles out of thin air, you know, the, the factories to make all this green stuff in the United States. It really was. It was by far the largest energy bill in the history of the country. Um, and it's, you know, and you can already see some of the, some of the results. Let's talk about some of the, the California characters, because there is the definitely a Silicon Valley Bay Area uh, cast of characters that are very instrumental in, in, in this story. So, uh, Steve Chu would start there, Secretary of Energy. Uh, what kind of a character do you paint him as in the book? Well, you know, he's a nerd. Um, it's, uh, you know, and this is a very nerd-friendly book, I think. Um, you know, kind of written by one, I think. You know, not not that smart a nerd, but uh, um, but uh, but he's. Uh, but what's interesting is that one thing that I don't think people don't understand about Chu is that obviously he's got the unbelievable science brain. He's won the Nobel. He's a Nobel laureate. Um, but he's also, I think, in large part because he spent so much of his career out here, he also understands the energy business. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the, in the clean energy world, Nancy can talk about this better than I can, but, you know, it really doesn't matter how cool your technology is, you know, on the lab bench. Um, what matters is how much it costs and whether it can scale. And, you know, that's how you change the world, not by building the best mousetrap, but by building the mousetrap that can beat fossil fuels. Um, and I think he really understood that in a way. I mean, there, there's, there's a scene where I follow him around the, uh, the ARPA-E showcase where he's looking at all these science experiments and he's asking these questions about, you know, the nanotechnology behind it and, you know, have you thought about this and that? And I, I won't do it justice, but I do. I remember I, like, scribbled in my notes, like, I don't think Hazel O'Leary asked questions like this. <laughs> it's just... Uh, she was a former Secretary of Energy. You yeah, talk about the brainiacs uh, that, that came in, and you also say that uh, the Department of Energy was like a government version of Sand Hill Road, the home epicenter of venture capital. So, Nancy Fund, you know, was that true, that, that this sort of was bringing Silicon Valley... Uh, people and ideas into the, this sleepy backwater well, agency? I would say that there was a very fruitful, very active uh, dialogue between Silicon Valley and the DOE, uh, and there still is. Uh, 
because the DOE was very interested in tapping into the innovation that, that this region is famed, famous for, and, and, and as well as other parts of the country. Uh, but without that, that uh, cross-pollination, there wouldn't have been many of the successes that we're seeing today. And, and of course, the, the, the media has focused on the failures, and yet there, there are plenty of successes that are, that are in, in the works here that are a result of uh, the meeting of the minds of, of um, the DOE and, and Silicon Valley. Another and some case. of them were really, I mean, you know, the, not just Chu, but you know, Arun Majundar from sure. from from Berkeley and and Kathy Zoy, who is had been in venture capital and clean tech, and I see Sanjay Wagley's here, and uh, and he was doing clean tech venture capital. I mean, they were bringing people. Matt Rogers, who oversaw the stimulus for for the Department of Energy. Um, he, was, he had started McKinsey's clean tech practice. So these were people who knew the business and, and knew what they were talking about. And in addition, you know, they had the private sector chaps in addition to the kind of public sector responsibilities. And one of Matt Rogers' responsibilities was shoveling a ton of money out <laughs> the door quickly. It's almost impossible, difficult to fathom how much money had to move quickly and responsibly. And he ran into some real bureaucratic challenges there with prevailing wage and different things, right? So talk about how hard it was to move that much money fast and get results. Well, you know, there were like uh, Department of Energy had to oversee 144 stimulus programs and $90 billion. And, and some of these programs, they had to just start up from scratch. You know, it's like, how are we going to spend $2 billion to create an advanced battery industry in this country when we don't have one? You know, are we going to, are we going to fund the research? Are we going to fund just what we think is cool? Are we going to force these companies to have customers lined up? Um, there were just all these decisions. How are we going to, how are we going to start the first advanced biofuel refineries? Um, uh, how are we going to start giving out billions of dollars to utilities to start building a smart grid? Um, these these were really hard questions. You know, there there were these um, all that before the next election, by the way. Right? Well, you get not you know, and not just before the next election. You had to get the the money obligated in 18 months, or else it went away, and you were going to look like an idiot. So you had these you know they had these programs for weatherization, which had been getting a couple hundred million dollars a year, and suddenly you had to spend five billion dollars, five billion dollars, and you had to and Obama had made these big promises, and the division was known as the turkey farm at the de, at the department because George Bush had. Basically sent all the stiffs from the from the department into the weatherization division, hoping to then kill the program. That's the only way to actually get rid of a federal employee. So it was just uh, you know you had these Davis Bacon problems, which essentially meant you had to pay these pay these weatherization workers minimum the prevailing wage when there was no prevailing wage for weatherization workers. Nobody knew what a weatherization worker was. So it was really inventing these programs. The New Jersey State Energy Program got a 9,500 percent increase in funding. Um, there were there were 3,000 cities and towns across the country that got these that got. Well, they were called energy efficiency community block grants, where most of these most of these cities didn't even have an energy department. Which raises the question whether this was too much money thrown at thrown at a problem. Well, look, maybe maybe Nancy well, can answer. <laughs> getting back to that idea of a portfolio, I mean, certainly exactly. energy efficiency is low hanging fruit. It's it's the best way to 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 reduce uh, energy dependence and reduce carbon footprint is to use less energy. And and while that was probably one of the more difficult programs because you did intersect with municipalities and, and, and just 
not, no infrastructure, as you point out. They still made a great amount of progress, but they didn't leave it just to that. I mean, there was uh, $30 billion of the of the or 35 billion of the 90 billion was spent by the DOE in all kinds of programs ARPA-E going after those early stage innovations that are now beginning to bear fruit the the loan guarantees that there are some success stories there that you never hear about bright source energy in, in Oakland being one of one of the successful uh, loan loan guarantee programs for large scale solar thermal uh, and and a variety of, of programs, the cash grants, 1603 as it's called, that really unleashed huge amounts of private sector capital by allowing for leases uh, for solar uh, as opposed to having to pay up front uh, all of, all of uh, the, the cost of solar. You can pay it as a monthly lease payment. And, th- and that's opening up solar to the middle class and, and, and resulting in the kinds of numbers that we saw last week at the big solar show. They announced that in the second quarter of this year, uh, compared to last year, installations doubled in this country. And that's a fantastic number in any economy, but especially in an economy like we have today that is, you know, sadly not growing that fast. Maybe I'll, I'll throw out a few examples. I mean, the solar industry is a perfect example that actually all you hear about is Solyndra, Solyndra, Solyndra. The solar industry has increased more than 600 percent since the since the stimulus passed. Now, wind we had we had 25 gigawatts of wind in this country when when Obama took office. The uh, EIA, the energy forecast for the federal government was predicting that we'd have 40 gigawatts by uh, by 2030. Um, there were literally wind turbines rusting in the fields. A company, a Spanish company called Abengoa, had shut down all its U.S. projects um, in Texas and Illinois because, as, as Nancy mentioned, there was no ta- appetite for the tax credits. Um, the day after the stimulus passed, the head of Abengoa announced that he was investing $6 billion in U.S. projects. And, in fact, today... Well, Instead of 40 gigawatts by 2030, it's now 2012. We already have 50 gigawatts. So we've already doubled our wind power. Um, we've doubled overall renewables in this country. Um, and you're seeing, as Nancy mentioned, some of these RPE companies are already, you know, are already, I think a dozen of them have already raised follow-up venture capital. The loan guarantee program is financing the world's largest wind farm, a half dozen of the world's largest solar farms, the world's largest distributed distributed solar project, America's first cellulosic biofuel refineries. Um, so you're already starting to see, you know, it's it's people say where are the where are the stimulus's icons, right? Where is its where are the Grand Coulee Dam or the you know Skyline Drive? Well, you know, go out into the into the desert and you look at. At Ivanpah, you know, you can really see some of these these icons. Ivanpah being a uh, large solar installation in the Mojave Desert. We're discussing clean energy with Michael Grunwald, senior national correspondent for Time Magazine, and Nancy Fun from DBL Investors. I'm Greg Dalton. If this is so successful, why do more Americans believe Elvis is alive than the stimulus was a success? Well, I do think, uh, you know, the message got away early. <laughs> um, and I think part of this is it's just, it's very tough to sell a jobs bill at a time when jobs are disappearing. And there was no stimulus that could have, uh, that could have turned things around fast enough to, to brag about it. Um, you know, double digit unemployment is really hard to sell. And particularly, you know, Keynesian stimulus in general, even though in the economics field it's 
uncontroversial, and every Republican and Democratic candidate had supported a big Keynesian stimulus in 2008. Mitt Romney had the largest plan. Um, The House Republicans had voted for a $715 billion stimulus, uh, including Paul Ryan, that w- this was apparently good public policy, while Obama's $787 billion stimulus that was almost identical was Sharia socialism. But look, this is a, it's a tough sell to make because, you know, this is a time when families and businesses are tightening their belts, um, where you've just explained that, you know, we, we got into this mess because Wall Street was gambling with money it didn't have, and homeowners were taking out loans they couldn't afford. And so the answer is for government to pour $800 billion that it borrowed from China into the, uh, into the economy. It's just, it's not exactly intuitive. And then you have the Republicans making it sound like it's all condoms and Sodom the mall and, uh, you know, and all kinds of ridiculousness. Um, you have Democrats not defending it. You have the media talking about phantom congre- money going to phantom congressional districts and, and again, all kinds of ludicrousness um, that was not reflected. It was, it was, uh, you know, the message. Some of that happened, a- right? There were some congressional districts no, that, that was, had been. No, that was, those were typos. <laughs> those were typos. They were, you know, people had, had put in the wrong, you know, the wrong District information number, on right. there. And of course, because this was the most transparent federal spending in the history of our government, you know, every time somebody makes a typo, it goes on to recovery.gov so that every investigative reporter in America can find it and make fun of it, um, which is, you know, which is a good thing in the in the long run. Uh, this is the reason why in the beginning people, the fraud experts were predicting that 5 to 7% of the stimulus would be stolen. And so far the actual fraud numbers are 0.01%. Um, because this is the most scrutinized federal money in history. You ask the guy who is supposed to oversee it. He said, you'd have to be an idiot to steal this money. Go steal some other money. Um, but again, you know, people don't hear this. And, and uh, Obama... Go, just go get an earmark. But, you know. And Obama's had trouble defending it, right? I mean, he for one thing... He, you know, they had these messaging difficulties in the White House that I talk about in excruciating detail in the book. But then also he was on to the next, right? Then it was, he passed it after that big excitement in Denver. The next week it was on to the auto bailout, which was just as unpopular at the time. And then after that it was on to health care, which is, you know, still pretty unpopular. And so it was, uh, while the Republicans had this very consistent message where everything was big government, big spending, big mess, um, Obama was busy trying to do policy, um, and the and the Republicans were thrilled with letting him get his agenda passed because they thought it was bad politics for him. And I, I think Nancy that history, history will be a lot kinder to the stimulus than the talk shows of today, because it, it takes a while for some of these technologies to to get to commercial uh, operations, to scale, and to to find a place in the American. Mind in terms of you know, being the next big thing. I think Tesla arguably is, is the first icon we have in the clean tech world coming out of the stimulus, and it's it's a hell of a icon. I mean, it's it's certainly captured the imagination of people all over the world. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop there. It's just that when you design a new wind turbine that that has you know three times as much energy for the same amount of wind, that's quite complicated, and you can't do it. Um, in a couple of years in, in terms of going through the design, the permitting for the, your first pilot, the, the financing of, of, a, of a wind farm. And it's a very uh, complicated process. And four years in, there's a huge amount of progress. But 
um, you know, 14 years from now, we're going to see many more of the fruits of this, right. this policy. It's easy to make fun of a Chevy Volt today, to, right? Because it's too expensive. Everybody knows it's too expensive. Um, but Envia Systems, which uh, which got an ARPA-E grant to basically make a better battery. We should explain. ARPA-E is the Advanced Research Projects right. Agency, part of the Department of Energy. That, exactly. Okay. It was the only new agency created by the by the stimulus, right? The uh, you know the, the the original New Deal, which created WPA and CCC and millions of new government workers. ARPA-E, which was, you know, you may have heard of DARPA, right, which was... Uh, a Pentagon uh, research arm. This right, was a, a, invented the, the Internet. Equivalent. It invented GPS technology. Um, this was to create an energy equivalent. And one of the companies that got funded, Envia Systems, um, which is out in Silicon Valley, and has invented a better battery. And it's going to take... They're making the battery for the next generation volt, and it'll probably take five to $6,000 off the cost. And that's how that's how these things change. And again, it's this is the difference between trying to do policy, um, trying to create the Teslas and the bright sources, um, and the, and the wind of tomorrow, and just trying to do politics. I tell this story about how um, right after the stimulus vote, where House Republicans had voted, every single one of them voted against the stimulus. But, of course, there were a lot more Democrats, so the thing passed. Um, um, and Obama had just passed this huge agenda item in his first month. But Republicans went to this retreat in Virginia, and they were celebrating. John Boehner, who's now the Speaker of the House, he played a tape of the vote on C-SPAN, and he got a standing ovation. And Eric Cantor, his deputy, got up and said, we're going to have more votes just like this. I mean, you know, they'd just gotten their butts kicked, but they were excited that they had stuck together and made the stimulus unpopular. Mike Pence, who is another member of the Republican leadership, played a tape from uh, from Patton, where the general is saying about how we're going to run through the enemy like crap through a goose, um, which, you know, he was talking about the Nazis, you know, but obviously the the idea was that this was, instead they were talking about Obama. Um, Obama had just run through them. He had passed $90 billion for clean energy and $27 billion for health IT that's going to transform our, our pen and paper health care system and drag it into the digital age and roads and bridges and tax cuts and you name it, all this stuff that used to be bipartisan, um, Obama had just passed it, but they didn't care because they knew it was going to, in the long run, it was going to be bad politics for them. You also write about the uh, cash-and-trash Republicans, that some of those Republicans who were against the stimulus then were happy to go home and collect the money and then celebrate with their constituents that they had brought that money home. Tell yeah, us about sure. It. Paul Ryan sent five letters looking for, for stimulus projects that were going to reduce global warming and, you know, all kinds. You know, and I, I actually think that's sort of mildly hypocritical compared to voting for an almost identical stimulus, which I think is extremely hypocritical. Look, all of the Republican governors said that they were going to – or not all – but – Many of them said that they were going to turn this money down. There are actually a few Republican governors who were supportive of this from from the start, including Governor Schwarzenegger. Um, but in the end, Governor Sanford uh, from South Carolina was the only governor who made a real effort to turn down stimulus money, and he was overruled by his Republican legislature. He, he later, he told me for the book, I, he's actually sort of a hero in the book. He's kind of the principled Republican. He's a true small government guy. He really believes in it. Um, but he told me that, that that fighting his own Republicans to try to actually turn down the stimulus money that they were all saying was communism anyway, um, he said it was so such it was the, this unbelievably lonely time in his life, and he didn't quite say that's why he went on his little trip down the Appalachian Trail, but he did keep saying it was an unbelievably lonely time. 
<laughs> yeah, as Stephen Colbert said, yeah, they, the stimulus stimulated Mark uh, Sanford in a way. Yeah, he um, sent me a nice email the other day. Uh, but it's, but it's, it's, it's important to note <laughs> that really clean tech growth and clean tech jobs are nonpartisan, and we just did an analysis at, at DBL Investors last week. Published a report that shows that the job growth is happening in red states, blue states, swing states, and and many of the fastest growing clean tech job states are red states. I mean, you've got Brown, Senator, uh, Governor Brown back from Kansas, Governor Perry, uh, Texas, Governor Christie in New Jersey, all embracing some aspect of the clean tech um, industry. And so it, it, it really, once, the, the, once we see more of that, I think we'll be able to perhaps get, a, get more progress in Washington. Nancy Fund, the first President Bush appointed you to an advisory council. I mean, how did energy get so partisan and so political? It didn't used to be this way. The fact that I was uh, put on an environmental commission by a, a Republican president many years ago is, is something that I'm very proud of. And back then, it wasn't, it wasn't shocking. Whereas today, with the polar, polarization of the debate, it, it really, it is. It's not going to happen again. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well never say never. But, but what's important is, it's, um, if you look at where the job growth is, and much of it is in red states or swing states, people that have good jobs usually vote. And so I think you're going to see an evening out and perhaps even more power for clean tech, not only as a job creation tool, which it is very good at, but uh, in the ballot box. I mean, if, pe- if people are employed by the industry, they're more likely to vote for politicians that support that industry's growth. Michael well, the, Romo. The, the good news, I would say, is that if you, um, with the exception of Governor Sanford, if you and I'm, some, I'm proud of some of this reporting because I have very good Republican sources. And they really did. They kind of laid out their, their kind of conspiracy to destroy Obama before he even took office. So the good news about this is that it was purely cynical and political, um, <laughs> that, they would, that they would turn on a dime um, if they thought it was, you know, if they thought the political landscape had changed. It wasn't – there's no genuine – you know, distaste for wind turbines or, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, or electric vehicle batteries. Um, it was just those became Obama's, Obama's cars, the Obama mobile, um, in the same way that, you know, the individual mandate that had been the, the heart of Mitt Romney's health care plan in Massachusetts suddenly became the death of American free enterprise, you know, a couple of years later. Um, I tell about these secret meetings that, Eric Cantor and Mitch McConnell had where they recognized very early on that it was going to be really hard to turn this economy around in two years and that the Republicans – and people forget, this took some guts because at the time, Obama was at 70 percent in the polls. Uh, you know, there were two million people out on the mall saying, yes, we can, yes, we can. You know, people were debating, are the Republicans, are they the Whigs, are they the Federalists? Because obviously they're doomed. Um, and, and people thought they really had to cooperate with Obama. And it took a certain savvy to recognize that, no, uh, that their path back to power, their path back from oblivion was the word no. Uh, but once they did, they were, they were very disciplined about it. Well, let's talk about the current campaign a little bit. You write that, uh, that uh, 
Romney was a uh, Keynesian initially, and then he wrote a book, and then he airbrushed out some of the things in his book. So talk about that change and you know, where we're on the current campaign. Sure. I mean, you know, no apology, right? The, first, the hardback edition, right after the stimulus passed, when, you know, jobs, we'd gone from 800,000 jobs lost to, you know, basically we were starting to build jobs, and this book came out. And so it said, you know, Oh, the stimulus, it was disappointing. I would have done the stimulus a little differently. I would have focused more on permanent tax cuts. Um, by the time the paperback came out, it was like, stimulus was a joke. <laughs> it didn't do anything. Um, so again, I think, you know, Mitt Romney, who knows who's going to, you know, he's, if, if he's elected, uh, he's going to have to ride that Tea Party tiger too. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to know. Um, you know, who's going to be running the show. But certainly he had his own clean energy investments when he was governor of Massachusetts. And there's certainly no reason to think that he genuinely in his heart uh, believes that this stuff is the kind of socialism he describes it as now. The question is, you know, whether it even matters what's in his heart when you have a, a Republican, if you had a Republican majority where every Republican member spends their days worrying about getting a, pri- a primary challenge from the right. Um, and, you know, you start talking enough about how, you know, wind turbines and solar panels are imaginary, your base starts to believe it. Nancy, it well, except that in states like Colorado and Iowa, where, Iowa, where wind is big, it's, it's, it's been more difficult for Romney to gain momentum, and, it, and it's a more, contest, more contested race in those states, in part because of the fact that wind has created a lot of jobs in those states, and the, and the citizens of those states like having it. Uh, in their own backyard. There's a reason that the Republicans, you know, in their pledge to America in 2010, plank number one was we're going to rescind all the unspent stimulus money, which at the time was a couple hundred billion dollars. And actually, of that couple hundred billion dollars, they only rescinded zero dollars because people don't like having stuff taken away from them. But the idea that people really vote on energy issues, I want to sort of challenge that because a lot of polling says, well, people don't really vote on energy issues or environmental issues. They vote on pocketbook issues, social issues, the things that are more electrified, abortion, etc. Do people really vote on energy? But energy is a pocketbook issue. Uh, it creates jobs. It, it creates tax bases and communities. It's, it they lowers. don't talk about it very much, right? I mean, well, well, but look at uh, Governor Brownback, I mean, of Kansas. He gave a speech at the, the Wind Association annual meeting in support of extending the production tax credit. And, and he's a Republican governor yeah, of, of Kansas. Well, uh, and, and he enjoys all of these governors that are attracting jobs to their state. Haley Barber did it in Mississippi before uh, he was termed out. They enjoy the highest approval ratings of almost any politicians, the, the governors that create jobs. And so it's very much a pocketbook issue. So if clean energy is, is good for the politicians, why are they running away from things that are clean energy? I'm trying to unwind this. Well, if it's- I, don't, I mean, I think... I think almost there are very few issues that really matter in elections. One of the lessons of my book, I think, is, uh, you know, all the, you know, they did all this stuff in this huge bill and why have we never heard about it? Why is it so unpopular? Um, then you hear about well, why did, why did he do health care, which was also so unpopular instead of f- focusing on jobs? Then he did this financial reform that had this problem and that problem. Uh, student loans, all this stuff that he's gotten so much abuse over. And, you know, his numbers haven't really changed that much. And so one of the lessons, maybe this is less about the politics and more about governing, but when you're governing, you ought to do stuff. 
Because ultimately, you're just going to be judged, you know, for, right. for you know, 90% of the country has probably already made up its mind anyway. Um, and th- what they feel about energy depends on what their guy says about energy. Um, the, the real lesson is that there, you can make a real, and the, the subtitle of the book is The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. Because you can do a lot of change when you're sitting in that chair, uh, as opposed to, you know, sort of gaming out the political considerations of everything in it. You know, instead, you know, they could have said, huh, I don't know, how is geothermal going to play outside of Nevada? And how, you know, wind turbines, you know, do we want to tie ourselves to that kind of an untested technology or et cetera, et cetera? Instead, they just said, you know, what Obama really said is, we talked about all this stuff in the campaign. We've got $800 billion. Why don't we do it? Let's see what happens. And it turned out it was unpopular, but he's still winning. And high-speed rail is one thing we haven't touched on, but you write about how Rahm Emanuel thought that Republicans were horny for high-speed rail. That's right. <laughs> uh, turned out to be wrong, and that's where they tried to cram a bunch of money in. It got cut back. But let's touch on that one, and then we'll get some audience questions in here in a minute. Sure. Well, you know, high-speed rail is another one that's been a political disaster. You know, I, uh, I go to sleep crying because my governor killed my Florida high-speed rail project that was supposed to get me to my in-laws a lot faster than I can get there now. So the Governor Rick Scott of Governor Florida, Rick Scott said, of Florida. No thanks. Yeah, he uh, he killed the uh, the fast train in uh, um, from that was going to eventually connect Tampa, Orlando to Miami. Um, but look, uh, high speed rail. Um, it's turned out there's only one bullet train, and as you guys know in California, it's off to a very slow start. But there is, you know, there's billions of dollars being poured into the Midwest. Um, into the Northeast, into lots of different places for sort of higher speed rail um, that's kind of making rail better. Um, and ultimately, you know, I don't, I don't want to predict what's going to happen in California, but it's still alive. Um, and, and these are all, a lot, of, a lot of what the stimulus was, was sort of, you know, it was a little bit, there was a little bit of an element of throwing the spaghetti up against the wall and seeing what would stick. But, uh, but you could really defend... Um, each individual piece of it on its own merits, there was a defense for it, whether you like it or not. And high-speed rail is obviously about trying to deal with this future with millions more people where, you know, who knows if if these short flights are even going to be economically sustainable. Who knows if the, you can't just keep building highways forever. Um, this is more fuel efficient. Um, it's kind of a nicer way to travel. You can see how it's working in Europe and Asia. Um, it's, it's another way of trying to build this 21st century infrastructure in the same way that health IT or the smart grid or the broadband expansions are in, in, you know, in, in those necks of the woods. Michael Grunwald is a senior national correspondent at Time magazine and author of The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era. Our other guest at Climate One today is Nancy Fund, managing partner of DBL Investors. I'm Greg Dalton. If you're just joining us, you can find this and other podcasts of Climate One in the iTunes store. Let's go to our audience questions. Uh, and in this brief technical uh, break, I'll encourage you to come up with one one-part question. If you're on this side of the house, please come over. I'll go out that door. And uh, the line starts over there with Jane Ann, so we welcome your participation. This is often one of the best parts of the programs. Um, so let's have our audience question. Yes, sir, welcome. Hi, my name is Peter Gisela, and I've been interested in a national service program for 30 years. I proposed the Youth Energy Corps back in 1980 based upon my military experience and the history of the Civilian Conservation Corps. 
Now, Time Magazine in September 2007 did an extensive article on the case for national service, and um, Senator McClain or, and Obama supported this concept. And Obama promised to have 250,000 youth in AmeriCorps. Now, unfortunately, with the stimulus program, none of that money, the $800 billion, was allocated to AmeriCorps or the Corporation for National Community Service. Now, a month later, he got a bill passed to expand um, AmeriCorps and other programs with a focus on energy conservation and that. And you mentioned weatherization programs. Can you express or understand why the Obama administration was interested in this program, got a bill passed, but provided very little stimulus money for this program to um, impact on our society. I think there was some AmeriCorps money, and I know there's actually a Green Corps yeah. that was uh, that was started because I met somebody uh, at one of my events the other day that was that's doing a film about uh, about the Green Corps. Um, he's working uh, along the Anacostia River in Washington. Um, to uh, you know, teaching teaching young people some of the some of the kind of for the jobs the green jobs of the future and actual doing actual conservation work. Um, you know, I think weatherization is something that got off to a horribly slow start. Um, got a lot of horrible media coverage uh, about what a slow start it got off to. Um, got a lot of nasty Inspector General reports about how slow things were going. Um, and then they, I tell the story in the book about how they actually sent in this kind of butt-kicking woman who, with a real private sector ba- background to turn around the turkey farm. Operation Cupcake. And that's right. She had started it. That, that didn't work out so well. And she ended up getting sort of ridden out of, ridden out of Washington on a rail. But she did fix the program, and it did meet all its deadlines, and nobody wrote any stories about that. And it did end up weatherizing a million homes. So, again, uh, stuff is happening. It's not getting a lot of attention um, because it's not so sexy. I spoke spoke at the graduation of the Green Corps class Mm -hmm. in Oakland uh, uh, this summer, and it was the first I had uh, encountered the the program. But the the graduates are working for city governments, regional governments, um, clean tech firms. Many of them are implementing stimulus programs relating to solar or energy efficiency or other aspects. And so, and that wouldn't be happening without some of the, the dollars that support those programs. But it was, you know, it's a very vibrant pro- program and the, the graduates are off to the races in terms of having career choices. And those one are of the differences when the the Republican alternative that Paul Ryan voted for that was almost identical. One of the differences was that it had no money for youth jobs. And those jobs are jobs that are not easy to be exported, right? Those are sort of domestic jobs that, that aren't going to be sent off to India or anything like that. And um, after you caulk a window, it's caulked, you know. Right. <laughs> so, Provides f- future uh, future savings. Well, and of course, that's a wonderful part of the the story is that so many of those jobs, especially on the downstream, on the installation, on the the uh, building the big uh, solar plants or putting on rooftop solar. Uh, same with wind. Those those jobs are, are local and, and are, are quite uh, high quality. Uh, let's have another audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you, Alex Trembath. I'm an energy policy analyst at the Breakthrough Institute in Oakland. Uh, my question is, uh, Mike, you describe the stimulus as a down payment on America's clean energy economy. My question to both of you would be, what is next? I think all eyes are on, in particular, the production tax credit expiration for wind energy at the end of the year uh, and then wind turbine 
deployment is expected to plummet in 2013. So it's not clear that uh, these technologies in these sectors are free of subsidy independence or policy support. So what do you see as the next couple years or the next decade in, uh, in policy influence uh, and in, uh, in capital market movement for, uh, for clean energy sectors? Thank you. Well, I would start by saying that all forms of energy in this country are subsidized, uh, including especially fossil and fossil fuels uh, through the tax code and, and other and nuclear through insurance, the Price-Anderson Act. So uh, to, to single out renewables as having incentives is, is not at all accurate today or any time in our history. What's happening is that you're – there's an impatience because of the political climate that we've been describing for these these incentives uh, for renewables, and so they're under pressure. But what I'm hearing in Washington is that after the election, when cooler heads will hopefully prevail, uh, that there is support, broad, uh, bipartisan support, uh, for some kind of an extension of the of the production tax credit, which which will um, sort of eliminate some of the problems that you describe. And because of what we were saying earlier, that the wind blows just as as hard in red states as in as in blue states, you're seeing support from from uh, Main Street for for the PTC in a way that perhaps you doesn't you don't see in in Washington debates. Michael, one thing I would just add is that uh, the part of the goal of the stimulus, and I think it's been pretty successful in some areas, was to help bring some of these technologies to scale so that they would start reducing their costs um, to at least get a little closer to a, a level playing field. And you're seeing that with solar, which is the reason that Solyndra went under, right? <laughs> solar got too cheap, too fast. Um, and, uh, and Which Solyndra was, was not because of the stimulus, but because of well, China sorry. flooding the market. And it was China's stimulus. <laughs> um, right. But, uh, but, but the U.S. demand-side stimulus helped as well. Um, but, uh, you know, elect, electric vehicle batteries is another example where there's a glutted market, and you're going to see some Solyndras there. Um, but ultimately, you're also seeing the costs really coming down quickly. Um, other areas that are really starting to pick up, thanks to that jump start, um, the, the smart grid, which now utilities, you know, the, the government sort of gave utilities a little boost, and now you're going to start seeing them do more of that on their own. Um, some areas like, you know, like the cleaner coal stuff, that really it looks like it's going to take a, a really serious carbon price to get anywhere with that. That's been uh, That's been pretty disappointing. We're discussing clean energy with Michael Grunwald from Time Magazine and Nancy Fund from DBL Investors. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, I'm Clara Vondrich with ClimateWorks Foundation. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I really appreciate you reminding me that President Obama has done a number of important things on climate and energy. I'm often um, very down on him on that, uh, still resentful that he put health care before cap-and-trade and then virtually stood back and did nothing to support cap-and-trade. Um, what do you think the chances are for movement in that direction if he does get reelected? Um, conversely, I've also heard a lot of talk about a carbon tax lately, especially in the context of um, a debt deal. Do you hear anything in, in Washington right now that gives a signal that we might see some kind of compromise uh, over the debt that includes a carbon tax? Take the second one first. No. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I don't expect that. Um, so no carbon, me, no, no carbon, carbon tax. tax. That's just, uh, you know. And this this goes to the first question. And I, I thank you for your kind words. But uh, certainly, um, the arc of the Obama narrative, I think, that I did. I hope my book is somewhat of a corrective. Um, is that you can't make change if you don't have the votes. Um, you know, the bills that don't pass pass the Senate 
um, don't make change. And, uh, and there was not 60 votes for cap and trade, um, which is why Obama and particularly Rahm Emanuel did not want to, did not want to deal with it. Um, because it was, he just felt it was a losing battle. Um, it wasn't worth spending the political capital. People say, you know, why wasn't the stimulus bigger? You know, I, if you read the book, you'll see that, uh, you know, there were three Republican senators who were willing to support the stimulus, but they said absolutely not one dime more than 800 billion. There were also half a dozen centrist Democrats who said absolutely, you know, they were drawing the same line in the sand. Um, so I think a lot of the, uh, and it's fair to say, oh, you know, he was a great communicator. Why couldn't he convince these people? Um, but, you know, it's not clear how President Mark Begich of Alaska was going to be convinced. You know, you can't impeach him. And uh, and I do think that he did, uh, after yeah, talking U.S. about... U.S. Senator Mark Begich, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was one of the people who said he just wasn't willing to do more than $800 billion. Why not more than $800 billion? He didn't really have a good explanation, but that was his line in the sand. And that's how you end up with these, you know, why is there no public option in health care? Well, because he didn't have the votes for the public option. And that's why you end up with the Cornhusker kickback for health care, too, because Ben Nelson wanted that. And that's that's what makes a lot of the governing is sort of inherently ugly. And the process of getting to 60 votes in the Senate is even uglier. And when Rahm Emanuel's in the middle of it, it's not really suitable for, you know, young ears either. <laughs> but but uh, but that's how that's how change gets made. Um, you know, people forget sort of what Social Security looked like after, you know, in its first version when uh, when FDR passed it, because it doesn't look like the Social Security we have today. And you write that uh, the stimulus pact, uh, stimulus plan basically showed that President Obama was the kind of person that he promised to be, that he was a data-oriented, left-of-center technocrat and a pragmatist who's solicitous of experts. Is that right? Yeah, and he didn't, you know, he didn't go running after the perfect, you know, if it was going to spoil the good. Um, because, again, you know, the sort of the implicit argument of the book is that the stimulus was pretty damn good. I mean, you know, going from a few billion dollars to $90 billion in clean energy, is, you know, that's orders of magnitude more than any anybody had any do, ever done about about global warming and i understand why people are upset that he isn't uh, that he isn't talking about climate change as much as he once did and perhaps he may have overpromised and talked talked about how you know he was going to stop the rise of the oceans um, but uh you know it's it's fair to say that he hasn't lived up to the hype but what i always say is that parenthood is the only thing in life that lives up to the hype Let's uh, talk about Solyndra a little bit. We have a few minutes left. Um, Solyndra, I learned some things in the book that it raised a billion dollars before the government got involved, that it had funding from Richard Branson and the the uh, Walton family of the Walmart fortune, uh, yet all that's often heard about is the sort of crony donors to the Ivana campaign, et cetera, and that it was a really stupid thing to do. But there was a other, a billion, some presumably smart people put a billion dollars in first on something right. they thought was a good idea. Right. And remember, the Bush administration chose Solyndra from among 143 companies that had all applied for clean energy loans. Solyndra was the winner. It was going to get the first one, and they almost got it done during the uh, the Bush administration. Um, like you said, it had Republican donors. The Republicans in Congress have subpoenaed 300,000 pages of documents. Um, they haven't found any anybody doing anything wrong. And this was unfortunate, uh, you know. Um, but 
But if if all the loans had if all the loans had uh, had hit it big, you'd know that these that they really didn't need the government involved in the first place. Um, there are going to be more cylindras. Uh, these things are going to fail. There, you know, what uh, what Steve Chu and uh, would would always say is that you know we're we're pioneers and pioneers can't be afraid to fail. Um, but look, the overall portfolio. John McCain's finance chairman was appointed to to do a review of the entire portfolio, and he's found that that it's doing fine. There's plenty of money. They could have half a dozen cylinder-sized failures, and there would still be plenty of money to cover it. Um, this the idea of it is. You know, it's there ought to be a great debate in this country about this sort of green industrial policy. Um, but it's not just picking winners and losers. It's picking a game, and the argument was. Hey, look, we need to reduce our, our dependence on these foreign petrothugs who want to sell us oil. Um, we want to reduce our carbon emissions that are broiling the planet. We want to, you know, de- stop our vulnerability to when a hurricane comes through or something crazy happens in the Middle East, suddenly we're plunged back into a recession. And yeah, these are, these look like the industries of the future. You know, maybe we can create millions of jobs that are sort of America, go, they sort of play to America's value added as an innovator. Um, so yeah, th- this is where we're going to put some of our chips. And it didn't just in- invest in solar or solar manufacturing or renewables. It really the entire food chain, um, just about anything that any pathway away f- away from fossil fuels got some money. And you can argue whether we ought to be subsidizing thousands of private firms. Um, you know, it wasn't like it, instead maybe we should have just. Hired government workers. Maybe we shouldn't have put money money into the industry at all. But uh, but we've been debating this imaginary stimulus that outsourced wind turbines to China when in fact we've insourced insourced wind turbines. That was just this big crony capitalism deal when really the only example of any inappropriate political pressure was something that I reported in the book for a, actually a very Republican friendly company that Obama had promised to help during the campaign. Um, there just there hasn't been a there there on any of those on any of those accusations, um, and we haven't had the real debate about clean about clean energy and whether it deserves government support. Nancy, and it's important to remember, pre the the loan guarantee for Solyndra, there was a time when Solyndra was a very popular venture deal. I mean, there were people vying firms to get to get into that deal, and. Uh, it obviously didn't work out, but it had to do with what went on around Solyndra. Uh, certainly there were internal issues <laughs> to the company. As, but, but when you have that kind of free fall in solar prices that we've witnessed over the past few years, it's going to change a lot of business plans and not all of them are going to survive. So the, the point is that the government had a portfolio approach. It, and it required other private sources of capital to, in those, in those later stage loan guarantees to step up as well. So it wasn't out there on a limb. And as we've been talking about, there, there are success stories that are, that are out there. Solar City is doing pretty well, right? <laughs> right. Solar City didn't, didn't get, get a, uh, a loan guarantee when all was said and done. Uh, but has been, you know, certainly benefited from the rigors of that process and getting private capital to finance Solar Strong, which you're referring to. But there will be more cylinders and more failures. And wh- when that happens, uh, you're in the business, you're accustomed to that. That's part of what you expect. But taxpayers and voters don't always uh, like or expect those kinds of failures. So when that happens, uh, will Silicon Valley investors do some communicating and say, hey, look, this is this is part of the game, or do you just go to be quiet? Well, that's part of the reason that people like me are on shows shows like this, and, and we, we go to 
to Congress. We, we, we try to educate the people as, as much as we can about how these programs have played a very positive role in, in our, in our companies. One, one company, we're in Primus Power that makes a flow battery, uh, for storage to apply, uh, to wind and solar, um, energy to, to lengthen the amount of time that, uh, the solar day uh, occupies or to firm up winds variability, got a, a very small grant from the ARPA-E program a few years ago and, and just uh, last month got a, a big grant from the Bonneville Power Authority to help it figure out what to do with its wind resources uh, because if you could store some of that wind, you wouldn't have to curtail it and, and anger a lot of people in, in the, the Northwest um, that, that objected to a few summers ago when there was a lot of hydro coming through Bonneville Power, uh, they curtailed wind and ended up with, you know, some lawsuits as a result. So there are all kinds of, they're, they're very, if you look at these companies, they're meeting their milestones. You know, some are taking a little longer than, than people thought. But on a venture, you know, that's, on a venture basis, you really look at, okay, well, you got this amount of money. How much did you get done? And that determines kind of what price you pay for the next round. If I could just, you know, this also speaks to, your, your question speaks to this larger sort of zero defect mentality in government. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the untold stories of the stimulus that you know, I tried to tell in the book is that there really was a, a, this, this kind of this hidden government reform, a new way of dealing with how we're going to spend the taxpayers' dollars. Um, and it's a little riskier because the old way, like you take transportation. If you want to build some sprawl road in the middle of nowhere, you know, you do your traffic study, you uh, show that you've, you know, you've done your small business hiring report and your minority hiring report, you've checked all your compliance boxes, and the government gives you a check. It's like the old entitle- entitlement mentality. And we just spread money around the country like peanut butter for anybody that raises their hand. Um, the stimulus created these competitions um, where you actually, it was kind of revolutionary. You had to show that your project made sense. Uh, you had to show that you weren't just shovel-ready, but you were shovel-worthy. Um, and then you had to compete. And then for, for transportation, there was this TIGER program where you had to, you, they really measured which has the biggest economic and environmental benefits. And one of the scary things about that is it means that bureaucrats have to make decisions. They actually have to think. Um, and uh, and and believe it or not, it turns out that some people went into public service to serve the public, and they actually welcome that kind of challenge. But it does mean that when something goes wrong, you can point a finger and say, hey, that's a screw-up. While, like, uh, like somebody, somebody in the White House told me, they were like, what, you think that, uh, you think that there aren't students who got Pell Grants who, who don't end up drunks on the street corner? I mean, you know, when everybody gets a tax break, then nobody says when a company goes under, hey, that company got a tax break. You know, when somebody forecloses on my house, they don't say like, hey, and he had a home mortgage deduction. But these are these are actually when you have to compete, where you have to show that you actually deserve the loan, and then government says, hey, you deserve the loan and you don't, then you set yourself up for these cylinder-type situations, and we'll see whether the sort of political culture can handle it. We have just a couple minutes left. Let's look at the future, things that you think should happen or you're looking to happen that would advance the clean energy economy, that stimulus is the past. Let's look at the future. Where is this going? Michael, we'll end with Nancy. I think some sort of renewable energy standard would certainly help. Um, I think the chance of a carbon price in the very near future is kind of unlikely, but you'll see states like California moving in that direction, and and that's going to – that's going to drive innovation. And so I think there's going to be this constant interplay between 
the innovation and technology side and the policy side with, I suspect, innovation way ahead of policy. Nancy Fund, uh, clean tech was a fad in Silicon Valley for a while. A lot of firms have pull, pulled back. Is that going to stay, or are we going to see another wave of uh, clean tech? I think there's still a lot of support for clean tech here in, in the Valley and, and across the country with, with uh, the venture capital community. The numbers continue uh, to grow, and, and it, has, uh, it has amassed, you know, billions of dollars in terms of investment. So I don't think you're going to see a, a big stepping away from that. The venture industry goes through cycles and has its ups and downs, and, and certainly in this in this climate it's been difficult. But I think there's fundamental support because it, it has to do with innovation, and, and the cycle is, is a strong one, and we're just beginning to, to see some of the fruits of that of coming out. And, and so I think that once we get some more Teslas out there, and, and, and begin to, to show that there, there's a robust model here, then you'll see uh, more, more investment and, and, and more realization of today's investments. We have to end it there. Nancy Fund is managing partner of DBL Investors. Our other guest today at Climate One has been Michael Grunwald, senior national correspondent with Time Magazine and author of The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era, which is on the New York Times bestseller list. Our thanks to our audience here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. If you just joined us, you can listen to this and other podcasts of Climate One in the iTunes store. So thank you all for coming to our audience here in San Francisco.